I was delighted to find out this week that there is in the Bible a, a New Testament. Did you hear about this yet? I mean, after spending several months in Ezra and Nehemiah, it uh, might have been easy to forget that the Bible also has the Gospels and the Epistles and all these other things in the other half of it. Uh, my, my last church used to tease me and they'd say, you know, Pastor Brian, there is a New Testament in the Bible. Um, and I used to respond, the New Testament is only about a quarter of the size of the Old Testament. And therefore, you should expect a lot more preaching out of the Old than the New, just because of the ground that we have to cover. But what we're going to see, hopefully, today is that the Old Testament, the time that we've spent in Ezra and Nehemiah, is going to lay great groundwork for what we'll see in the New. In fact, we're going to, study, we're going to start the study of 1 Peter this morning. And we're going to see that even in the first two verses, there's enough there in those first two verses. We're just going to meditate on those two verses today. But even in those first two verses, we need the Old Testament to understand this text. One commentary I read this week uh, said they listed over 30 times 1 Peter explicitly quotes or alludes to the Old Testament. Over 30 times in just about 105 verses in this book, which means about one out of every three verses that you read in 1 Peter expects you to know something about what has gone before. But what I'd like to do, instead of giving you an extended introduction uh, with a bunch of background up front, I want to let Peter introduce the text himself. We have a couple of ushers here who are happy to give out some Bibles. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hands. This is our gift to you. If you need a Bible to take home, we would be glad for you to have this uh, free of charge. Or if you just need a Bible for this morning, we're happy to give it to you as well. But we're going to be in 1 Peter looking at just verses 1 and 2. Let's start with verse 1, 1 Peter verse 1. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. And let's just pause there. I know we're pausing mid-sentence here. But think about just that first word there, Peter. Now, there's a name that you recognize. Praise the Lord. Peter, his name means rock. Uh, you, you'll find as you read through 1 Peter that he likes to play with his name quite a bit. Uh, his name means rock, and, and at times in this book, he's going to talk about living stones. He'll talk about a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He'll talk about a stone that was a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, a stone which builders rejected. He's very aware of his nickname, and he uses it to great effect throughout this little epistle. You're probably at least somewhat familiar with this, Peter. This is the Peter of the 12 disciples, the leader of those 12. You know him. This Peter has a tendency to leap before he looks, to speak before he thinks. Uh, you might remember some of his stories. He passionately claimed at one point, Lord, I will never deny you. I will die on your behalf if I need to. And then yet just hours later, he denies Christ three times. Yet despite Peter's failures, Jesus restores him. And Peter goes on to preach some of the most amazing sermons in the book of Acts. If you've ever read that book, he was a leading missionary in the early church as the church was beginning to form. He experienced great persecution. He led the church through its seminal days. That's the Peter who wrote this book. He says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
Now that word apostle can be used in a general sense of messenger or delegate. Sometimes it was used like that outside of scripture. But almost always when we see that word in scripture, it's used in a very technical sense of someone who is officially commissioned by God as an authoritative spokesperson. You might sometimes go to churches today that they use that title for their leaders. You know, instead of pastor so-and-so, it would be apostle so-and-so. But as we see that word in scripture, it's not a title for today's leaders. We don't call our leaders apostles. Acts chapter 1, we see uh, that the disciples were choosing a new apostle to replace Judas, and they had very specific criteria, criteria that, that we cannot meet today. They said, we need to choose somebody who has physically seen the resurrected Christ. We need to choose somebody who has been with Christ throughout the beginning of his ministry and onward. We cannot say those things of ourselves today. So a, apostle is a title for certain people in the Bible, but not for us here. Peter was an apostle. He clearly defines his audience. He says to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to Christians who are scattered all throughout Galatia and Asia, Asia Minor. Um, most of these locations you probably don't recognize. And by the way, I promise this is the most difficult list of names that you're going to see in this book. Right here, we've already passed it. You'll see a few other names at the very end, but this is the most difficult list. Let me show you a map of where these places were located. You'll notice on this map, um, it's a little bit hard to see some of the, the words in white, but pretty much all of Asia is where he's writing to, modern-day Asia. Towards the end of his letter, Peter's going to make a comment that might indicate that he, he's perhaps writing from Rome. He might be in Rome writing this, and he's sending this to all these Christians scattered throughout Asia. And at this point, it might be helpful for us to know a thing or two about the time and historical situation of when Peter is writing, because that has a lot to do with this book. History tells us that the apostle Peter died at the hands of the Roman emperor Nero. He died around 68 AD. And most likely, this letter was written towards the end of his life, almost certainly towards the end of his life, right before he was martyred by Nero, during Nero's persecution of the Christian church. Now, if you've ever heard anything about Nero, it's probably not good. He was a bad, bad dude. Here's a drawing or a picture based on one of his busts. He just looks like a bully, doesn't he? I mean, doesn't he? He looks like he can play an ogre in the next Lord of the Rings movie or something like that. He just does not look like a friendly kind of guy. Now, typically, I don't use Wikipedia as an academic source, and, I, and I'd recommend, by the way, uh, for my students that are here, not to use that either on any of your, uh, your papers, but I thought that a Wikipedia article on Nero really summarized nicely his reign. It says, and I quote, his reign is commonly associated with unrestricted tyranny, extravagance, religious persecution, and debauchery. That's quite the list. And that's very accurate for everything we know about Nero. Nero is said to have started the great fire of Rome. And then when he started it, he blamed Christians, uh, resulting in their widespread persecution. He's, he's said to entertain himself by watching Christians get torn apart and eaten by wild animals. It is said of Nero that he lit his garden with the impaled burning bodies of believers. That's the time period that Peter's writing in. That's the audience 
that Peter is writing to. And you think we have it bad during the Biden administration? And, and I'm serious. I'm not trying to be political here. What, what I'm commenting on, though, is that I hear very many Christians complaining about Biden, about Harris, even in here in Pennsylvania, Fetterman or whatever, right? And I get it. I mean, there's some things to complain about. But put that into perspective. We are not living in a time of Nero. We are nowhere near where things were with Nero, specifically in regard to persecution of Christians. But other countries are. Many places around the world, Christians are being martyred, killed. They cannot publicly meet for fear of being imprisoned or murdered. In other countries, there is government-sponsored persecution of believers. I don't care what you think of our current administration in America. It is not that bad yet. I want you to feel, though, the weight of Peter's historical situation. When he says that he is writing to those who are scattered throughout the ancient world, I mean, he means it. They are scattered because they have fled for their lives. They were under persecution from Rome, and Peter himself would soon lose his life for the gospel. In fact, around the same time, the apostle Paul was killed as well. This is what Peter was going through when he wrote this. That's what his readers were going through when they read this. That's why we've chosen for this theme of our book that this is a book about holy living in a hostile world. Holy living in a hostile world. The world around Peter hated Christians. Our world is becoming increasingly hostile against Christianity. And yet, believers, we are called to holiness. We are not called to complain on Facebook, but we are called to holiness, sanctification. We're going to see that word soon. Let's focus for a minute on what Peter says about his readers. Not just that they're scattered all throughout, but he uses a couple of key words here, very theologically loaded words. So we're going to do a little theological Bible study here as we look at some of the words Peter uses. They're a scattered audience. They're Christians. But pay attention to the two terms that Peter uses as well. He writes to those who reside as aliens. And he also, at the end of verse 1, says that they are chosen. Now, the letter of 1 Peter was originally written in the Greek language. And in Greek, the two words translated here as reside as aliens and who are chosen are actually side by side. You can mix up the order of the, of the words in Greek and still have the same ideas. Uh, though the New American Standard Version that we use here translates the grammar accurately, it doesn't quite capture the relationship by putting these two terms together. Peter puts them together. I like how the ESV translates it here. It says, to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. Have you ever thought about who you are? What is your identity? How do you think of yourself? Who are you? Some people tend to define their identity through their occupation. I'm a lawyer. I'm a pastor. I'm a used car salesman. I'm a blogger. I'm a college student. I'm a stay-at-home mom, whatever it might be. Some people tend to define their identity through their relationships. I'm a father, a mother, grandpa, grandma, son, daughter, grandpa, husband, wife, whatever it might be. Still others defined their identity through their accomplishments or their accolades. I'm the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I'm the manager of a bank. I'm an influencer with over a million followers, captain of the sports team. 
Who are we as Christians, though? Well, Peter says that we are elect exiles. Consider that word exile first. Coming on the heels of Ezra and Nehemiah, that word might sound familiar. What is an exile? An exile is someone who lives in a country that's not his own. You can translate it temporary resident. It's a word for someone that's staying in a strange place or a foreign place for a limited time. Usually they're there by force. They've been forced to leave their home country and go somewhere else for a time. Now we know that Peter's audience was literally physically scattered all throughout the ancient world. They were literal exiles, dispersed physically. But I think Peter is probably referring to something more spiritual or metaphorical here because he's going to use this metaphor throughout his short letter and you're going to see that it extends beyond just the physical people of his time and relates to Christians of all time periods. We are all considered exiles. Now this shouldn't be anything new to you at this point. If you've been with us through Ezra and Nehemiah, you will have recognized this term and this concept. Remember Ezra chapter 9? People get back into the land and Ezra prays this prayer to God and he says, but now Lord, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. Now, if you could read this in the original Hebrew language, you would see that Ezra uses the root word for slave three times in four verses. Slave, slave, slave. From the perspective of the returned exiles, they were still slaves. They were still in exile. Nehemiah, later on, chapter 9, has the same perspective. He says, behold, we are slaves today. As to the land that you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. The post-exilic exiles were still exiles. From their perspective, in their minds, we are slaves even though we're still living in our own land. This is also the perspective, or a very similar perspective, of writers in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven. For which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body from this humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Christians, we are not citizens of this earth. This is not our home country. From a believer's perspective, we are not primarily citizens of America. We are citizens of heaven. That's our first citizenship. And yet here we are, living on this earth. That's why Paul says we eagerly await the return of Jesus Christ, that he might bring us to that heavenly home. Isn't that a great anticipation? Or rather, he's going to bring our heavenly home to us. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter 11. He talks about believers who have died throughout the Old Testament, and he says, all these died in faith without receiving the promise. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The people of the Old Testament world had faith that God had for them something greater than what their eyes could see. 
They might have seen the promised land. They might have even been in the promised land, but that was not even their eternal home. They saw it, but they believed that God had for them something even greater. And that made them strangers and exiles, even on the earth on which they walked. You know what? It's no different for us, is it? How many of you have seen heaven? I haven't. But we live in faith of our eternal home, of our actual home. We are spiritual exiles in a fallen world. How would you live differently here in America if you were an exile here? How would that change your mindset? If you were constantly looking forward to going back home somewhere, how would that change the way that you lived? Everything you did here, you would realize this is temporary. This is not my forever home. Everything you did, you, when you use your money, you're going to use it differently, right? When you, when you take a job, you're going to take a job in a different mindset. You'd have something else on your mind. This is not real home. I think so many Christians are very short-sighted. Many times all we think about is what's right in front of us. You know, our right now job our right now house, our right now success. But this is not your forever job. This is not your forever home. Jesus is building you a far better home than you can even imagine. Your success is not tied to what you do in your occupation now, but your success is tied to the rewards that you have stored up for you in eternity. As believers, I would urge us to change our mindset. We are elect exiles. We focused on that word exile. Now let's focus on perhaps the more difficult of those two terms, elect. This one is more controversial. What does it mean that we are elect? Remember, New American Standard translates it chosen us. We are chosen. Well, who chose us? Who elected us? Was there a vote? Was there a ballot? How did this work? Remember how I said this book leans heavily on the Old Testament? That word elect, or even that word chose, has its roots in Old Testament theology. In the Old Testament, it was used to talk about God's selection of the people of Israel. God elected this nation to be his chosen instrument of redemption through whom he would bring blessings to the other nations. That's how that word is typically used in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, uh, the Bible tells us that God did not elect Israel because uh, Israel was larger than the other nations. God didn't elect them because they were richer. He didn't elect them because they were stronger or better or even more righteous than the other nations. In fact, Deuteronomy tells us it was quite the opposite. God elected Israel to demonstrate his goodness and his love and his glory through them. So we purposely chose a nation that was not the best, that was not the biggest, that was not the most righteous. Because then when God did something amazing, God would get the credit instead of them. It's kind of like this. Um, it's like when I play wiffle ball with my kids in my backyard. It's very clear, I am the best. Right? Now, that's not a brag, that's a stated fact. I mean, it's just clear fact, right? I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm more coordinated than my children. So when we choose teams, I am very happy to pick my five-year-old to be on my team with me. That's no problem. I pick my five-year-old instead of my eight-year-old or my 10-year-old. And when Micah and I dominate the older two, 
who do you think gets the credit for that victory? Right? My older two aren't walking off the field going, boy, Micah has a really great swing. No, I mean, despite my five-year-old, we win. Who gets the credit? God does that through his people. It's not a flattering analogy for us on our end of the stick. God delights in choosing the weaker things of this world to magnify his own strength and his own glory. Through our weakness, God is demonstrated as strong. So in the Old Testament, that word elect is usually used of the nation of Israel. God elected or chose his people to himself, not based on their own merits. In the New Testament, elect or chosen is often applied to people God chooses to save. Titus chapter 1, Paul starts off his letter to this pastor by saying, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. That phrase chosen of God, it's translated in the ESV, God's elect. This is one of those difficult yet wonderful theological truths. The Bible clearly teaches that God elected to salvation those who would come to know him as their savior. And just like in the Old Testament, it's not based on how good you are. It's not based on God looking down the corridors of time and seeing that one day you'll be righteous or one day you'll have faith or anything like that and simply electing you based on your faith. It's based on God's sovereign will, the Bible says. And I could point to many, many verses that demonstrate this truth of Scripture. Let me just share with you a few of them so you can see what Scripture says. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5 says, Just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Notice some of those phrases. Before the foundation of the world. He predestined us, not according to our faith or according to our goodness, but according to the kind intention of his will. Before the world was created, you were chosen by God to be saved if you're a believer. It's not that we had faith in God and then God said, wow, that was a good idea. Maybe I'll save that person. God decided this before we were ever even made. We were predestined to salvation. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Doesn't get much more clear than that. We are not saved and called because of our works or our faith or anything like that. We are saved and we are called according to God's own purpose, which he determined from eternity past. Praise God. Now, I've got to admit, that is a challenging truth to wrap our minds around. But it's no less true just because we don't fully comprehend it. Truth is still truth, even if it is challenging. But what we have to keep in mind is that at the same time, even though the Bible clearly teaches that those who come to Christ in salvation were elected to do so, at the same time, those who come to Christ come to Christ of our own decision. We choose Christ as well. Election doesn't work contrary to human will. It works in conjunction with human will. You are responsible for your decision whether you accept Jesus or not. When you stand before God, whenever it is on that day, 
When you stand before God, you're not going to be able to say, well, you know, God, you didn't elect me, and therefore I shouldn't be sent to hell. And God's not going to go, oh, boy, that logic sounds really good. You, you got me. You know, you found a loophole here in the system. God's going to say, no, you had a choice, and you chose to reject me. In John chapter 5, Jesus accuses the people who reject him, and he says, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. He puts the burden on them. He doesn't say, well, you weren't elect, and therefore you bear no responsibility for your choice. He puts the burden on the people. So this concept of election, we have to keep this in mind. It doesn't cancel out human responsibility or human freedom. They are compatible with each other. The Bible affirms our responsibility to accept the gospel. The Bible affirms the gospel's invitation to all mankind. And the Bible also affirms at the same time that God is absolutely sovereign over everything, including that salvation. And these concepts work together, even if we don't necessarily comprehend how they can all fit. When I teach these doctrines in my theology class, I usually share a few quotes from theologians who can say it a lot better than I can. Let me share with you a few of these quotes that I find helpful. First one comes from a guy named D.A. Carson, and he writes in his book, How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. He says, number one, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. Number two, human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth, and they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. I shall argue that the Bible upholds the truth of both of these propositions simultaneously. The view that both of these propositions are true, I shall call compatibilism. I really like that. Maybe if that quote's too long for you, I'll give you a shorter one uh, by a guy named J.I. Packer in his little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says it like this. He says, the temptation is to undercut or maim one truth by way in which we stress the other, to assert man's responsibility in a way that excludes God from being sovereign, or to affirm God's sovereignty in a way that destroys the responsibility of man. Both mistakes need to be guarded against. And he goes on to write, in the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are friends and they work together. Now, where does all this lead us? I don't want you to get lost in this conversation. I mean, we want to dig deep with this theology. But here's the bottom line. You are elect exiles. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a born-again Christian, your identity is being found in being an elect exile. God chose you to be his. You are elect. And this earth is not your permanent home. You are in exile. What beautiful truths of Scripture. Far from being disturbing truths, they are beautiful, gospel-filled truths. They are encouraging to us. This concept of election, I don't know if you understand it or not, but it shouldn't frighten you. It shouldn't worry you. It's meant to encourage you and uplift you. God loved you so much that before you even knew that you needed to be chosen, you were chosen. Isn't that wonderful? He picked you for the team before you even knew there was a team. He adopted you into his family before you even knew that you were in the wrong family. This should be quite the boost to our self-esteem 
God loves you. How can we think negatively of ourselves when God has done so much for us? But guess what? It gets even better because we only did one verse so far. There are many others. Let's just add one more to our our verses this morning. Look at verse 2. Peter connects this concept of being elect exiles with God's work in us. He says to those who have resided as aliens, we're scattered, who are chosen, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. A friend of mine writes about this, that the first phrase here indicates the grounds for the reader's elect exile status. The second phrase indicates the means of that status. And the third phrase provides the purpose of them being elect exiles. Let's think about those grounds first. Why are we elect exiles? Well, it says here it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And we have to make sure we understand that word foreknowledge correctly. Uh, What does it mean that God foreknew his elect exiles? As I mentioned before, this is not, I don't think, God looking down the passageway of time and seeing that one day we're going to accept Jesus Christ and then he decides to elect us based on our faith. I don't think that's what this word means because if that were the case, then election would be based on us and not on God. To foreknow simply means to know something beforehand. In this case, before our salvation. But to know can mean a number of different things in Scripture. You can know something intellectually, like to know facts about someone. You can know something relationally, like to know somebody personally. But to know can also mean to choose or to determine, like how Amos uses this word in Amos chapter 3, verse 2. He talks about Israel, God's people, and God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, it's not just that God knew Israel intellectually. Because surely God was aware of other nations. He wasn't ignorant of these other nations. He knew about them. So that's not the sense in which Amos is using this. God chose Israel from all these other families of the earth. He chose them to be in a special relationship with him. And I would suggest that that's the kind of sense that foreknow is used in the New Testament. God knew us in the sense that he chose us to be in a saving relationship with himself ahead of time. He chose us to know him relationally. And that foreknowledge of God the Father is the foundation of of our election. Now, second, the means of our elect exile status. It says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, this is done. The Spirit sanctifies believers. That word sanctify comes from the same root word as the word holy. The Holy Spirit makes believers holy. Or sanctifies them. That's what sanctify means, to make holy. Now, there are a few different ways the Bible talks about this term sanctification. There's one sense in which sanctification is an ongoing process. Every single day, you are becoming more and more holy, more like Jesus Christ. God is actively sanctifying you. Isn't that cool to think about? It's a great truth. God is committed to your ongoing daily spiritual growth. If you are a believer, if the Spirit of God indwells in you, God, part of his job is to make you more holy, to help rid you of your sin, and to become more like Jesus every single day. What a blessed knowledge that God is working alongside of you to make you more like himself. 
So the Bible sometimes talks about sanctification as ongoing, a process. But here in 1 Peter 1, 2, sanctification is viewed as a completed reality. You are sanctified. You are made holy. That's why the Bible can talk about us as saints. That word saints also comes from the same root word as the word holy, same root word as the word sanctified. What are saints? Saints are holy ones. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you are a saint. The Bible doesn't say it's just a select few that achieve sainthood status. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible calls all believers saints because you are holy ones. You are sanctified, past tense. So live holy in a hostile world. God is so committed to completing the work that he began in you that he might as well write it in the past tense as if it's already been done. You are sanctified. So we are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And third, here's the purpose of our elect status. It says to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Next week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, communion, and we'll think about this idea of being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. The new covenant, we call it. This is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. In the Old Testament, the priests would slaughter an animal and they would sprinkle that blood either on the altar or perhaps on the holy object, sometimes even on the, the worshipers themselves. And this represented the cleansing of sin, the atoning power of God. When Jesus died, that blood was applied to you, to believers. You have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, it says here, to obey Jesus Christ. Did you catch that part of the text? What is the purpose of us being elect exiles? To obey Jesus Christ. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. We are not called to sit around and wait for heaven. We are not called and to be saved in order to just wait for the Lord. We are saved to be glorifying God through our good deeds. How many of you are familiar with this verse up on the screen? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one can boast. And what a great couple verses in Scripture, right? We're not saved by our works. We're saved through faith in Jesus. And all that's by God's grace well, you might wonder, well, what's the point of doing good works if I'm saved by grace? If it's all grace, then why bother being good? I could just lean on the grace of God, right? How many of you know the next verse that comes after it? Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before, beforehand so that we would walk in them. God working in us helps us to live a holy life. That's part of the purpose of us being saved. We cannot help but do good works if we are truly saved. We live holy lives in a hostile world. And what's so neat about these opening verses in 1 Peter is that it shows us how the entirety of the Trinity works together to ensure that these things happen within us. Did you notice that? The Father foreknows us. The Spirit of God sanctifies us. Jesus Christ, his blood, saves us. 
And therefore, we are called to be obedient to God. The Trinity transforms our identity and gives us new mission and meaning and purpose. The wholeness of God working in and through you. Hardly more exciting news can begin a letter. The fullness of God. That's why Peter writes that in the very last part of this verse, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. We are saved to experience that grace and peace to the fullest. Does this sound like a book worth studying? I hope so. We're going to see a lot of exciting things in 1 Peter. There's a lot to unpack in the next few months. We're going to look at the role of the word of God in the believer's life. We'll talk about how to face down trials and persecution. We will talk about marriage and salvation and suffering and ministry. There's a lot to look forward to. Let's take a moment and pray that the Lord will bless this study together and that God's grace and peace will be in us to the fullest measure worked out in obedience to the Lord. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for our salvation, for God the Father's foreknowledge of us, choosing us to be elect exiles, for the Spirit's sanctification of us, and for the Son's death on the cross and his blood being sprinkled upon us. I pray as a result of that salvation, you would help us to turn to you and be obedient, that we would live lives full of grace and peace, that we would live it to the fullest, experience that gospel salvation in us to the very top of our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified by the way that we live. I pray that you would transform our identities and our, the way that we think about ourselves, that we would recognize our elect exile status, that we would live differently in light of this not being our forever home. And Lord, through all of that, may we take this beautiful gospel and share it daily with those around us that they might come to experience the fullest measure of grace and peace as well. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here. God bless.